0: It's all about the roles of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask you, you can be turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. It'll be a few minutes before we get there. I'm going to have some other scriptures on the screen before we do that. And once we get into the book of Acts, we're going to be like doing a tour of the book of Acts. You're going to be a number of verses, but we'll all be in the book of Acts. So you just kind of cruise through there. Now, some of you are still trying to explore, who are we as Calvary Chapel? Well, that's a good question because we're not a denomination... But we are a fellowship of churches, started by Pastor Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. It really helped birth the Jesus movement of the uh, uh, 60s, and it kind of just grew from there. Other churches kind of grew out of the Calvary Chapel. Vineyard was one of them. And, and, And there's Calvary Chapels all over the world, all over the United States. But one of the things that you may not know is that contemporary praise and worship, like what we just sang tonight, came out of Calvary Chapel. It was at the very beginning. We had these hippies that got saved. They came into the into the church with guitars and drums, and you know, many people in more traditional churches were like, "This isn't for us, you know. This is this is the music of the devil, you know." And so, uh, but Calvary Chapel embraced them. They put Christian lyrics to to these songs, and that really is what started the um, the um, contemporary praise and worship. Otherwise, before that it was. Out of singing out of hymns. And some of you say, well, you know, it's very contemporary. But you know, those hymns were very contemporary back in the 1700s. So things have changed a little bit since the 1700s. Nothing wrong with the hymns. But do you know where the hymns came from? They came from putting lyrics to barroom songs. So they were very, probably controversial at the time, too. But uh, so it's kind of, that's part of our roots. And I I thought I'd share, first of all, a a little bit on as Calvary Chapel. it's kind of a, well, it's kind of interesting because we're kind of roots are in different areas. I would say that in Christianity today, there's like three main branches of Christianity. Let me describe the branches. One would be your liturgical, I have to say that carefully, liturgical churches, li- ones that worship with a lot of liturgy, okay? Uh, and they they tend to have a lot of uh, rituals involved in their worship, and you might think of churches like Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, some of your mainline denominations. I happen to grow up in a mainline denomination that that I had a lot of liturgy, repeat after me type of things. I knew exactly when to stand up, sit down rah 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 you know and uh, so the liturgical is one branch. Then there's another branch, and these other two branches, what would be considered more like evangelical. One branch is sometimes referred to as fundamental, and that's because the fundamental thing is on the teaching of the Bible, really very Bible-focused. And that would be like your Baptist churches would fit into, the, into that fundamental side. And then there's another branch of the uh, evangelical that would be much more of your Pentecostal charismatic. And describe those differently would be they focus a little more on the experience part in worship. So a lot more experience, moving of the gifts of the Spirit and so forth. And where the, uh, a lot of the fundamentals believe that some of that was done away with back in the biblical times. And, and that's not for today. We're just going to stay focused on this and not bring experiences like that in. And so where does Calvary Chapel fit in? That's a good question. Um, I think what we try to do is pick some good things out of all these different areas. For example, the fundamental side is very strong in the Word of God. And you see what we do here. We teach through the Bible. But from the Pentecostal charismatic side, they still believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. There's experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. and That's what I'm going to be teaching on today. So we believe that, okay, as Calvary chapels. But it's not like everything goes like maybe some of the churches that go into an extreme. Now, your liturgical churches, one of the strengths that they can have is a lot of good works that they do, like in the community and and giving to the poor and so forth. And I would like to think that we, we try to focus on that as well. We're involved in a lot of different organizations in the community, a lot of you volunteer, that we want to be a church that's serving the community, not just what happens here in the four walls of the church. So, I think what we try to do is take a little bit of each and, and and try to mold it together. Are we perfect? No, far from it, because all of you are here, okay <laughs> so we're we're not perfect because we're imperfect people. We don't have it all balanced, okay? you know if, if you were to take the evangelical. The evangelical side, there are extremes in the evangelical side. Like I said, one is very fundamental, like, no, the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's not for today. Where others is like pretty much anything goes in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's the other extreme. We try to have the balance in the middle of that, but I don't think we're perfect. I think we probably, we probably sway a little bit more towards the fundamental side than towards the Pentecostal charismatic side. But it's interesting, if you were to talk to a a true Pentecostal charismatic, they would probably say, no, you guys are fundamental, because you don't have the gifts operating in your services. if you were to talk to the fundamental folks, they would say, no, you guys, because you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you guys are more more Pentecostal. So it's kind of funny, because sometimes we don't know where we're at ourselves. But uh, I'm going to share with you what does God say? Now, what does Calvary Chapel say? We're going to be in the Bible, because that's what I, I, I believe is, is the way we find the balance, and, and, and that's what I'm going to teach you here. And so I think I want to start, first of all, with who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is uh, third person of the Trinity. The role of the Holy Spirit is always to point people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not about drawing attention to himself. He's a person of the Holy Spirit. It's not a force field. Okay, it's not like the force be with you, like the Holy Spirit, some type of force. field. It's a person. It can be grieved. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. It's a a person, just like Jesus and the Father. Now, when we think person, we think of humans. He's not a human, but there's a personality in the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is that third one. Now, one interesting thing is the Holy Spirit is found throughout the Old Testament. Some people think that's only after Jesus rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament, but what, here's what's interesting. The Holy Spirit never lived in people in the Old Testament. He would come upon them, and when he came upon them, it was for a few select people for a period of time. There was really no set pattern or place, but it was always for ministry. Character of that person was important, and we can f- see this in different cases, And we're not going to take the time to go through it, but you could jot down Numbers 11 is when Moses and the 70 elders had the Holy Spirit come upon them. You have uh, Joshua had it happen, Joseph, Gideon, David, the craftsman of the ark. Those were all cases in the Old Testament where it said the Holy Spirit came upon them for a certain purpose, but it never was living in them. Why do you suppose the Holy Spirit never lived in the people in the Old Testament? Because Jesus hadn't died for their sins. They would go to a place, a paradise, waiting, looking forward to the cross, but Jesus hadn't died for their sins yet. And after Jesus died from the, for their sins, then they could go to heaven because their sins were truly atoned for. And so the Holy Spirit really comes in afterwards. So let me just go through. There's three separate roles of the Holy Spirit that we see uh, in the New Testament, we, you, we see them used by a Greek word, and I'm going to share those Greek words with you. And so the three separate roles of the Holy Spirit, number one is the Greek word para. Para. And all these Greek words, we tend to use English words or derivatives from it. Think of parallel lines. What are parallel lines? Two lines next to each other. Or if you have a, a para church organization, it's an organization that comes along and supports a church. So para means alongside, means beside, with, and we typically th- see this role of the Holy Spirit with non-believers. We see this in John 14. You see this uh, passage on the screen. Starting in verse 16, it says, and I will ask the Father, this is Jesus talking, and he will give you another advocate, a comforter, so to speak, to come and help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You see, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him. Talking about the non-believers now. Can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you. That's That's the para and will be in you. That's the second role. We'll get to that in a moment. He lives with you. So let's now look at another passage in John 16. And you'll see the three main roles of the Holy Spirit beside a non-believer, okay? And you think about it, and I'll, I'll talk about, well, you just think about this for a moment. Before you became a Christian, was the Holy Spirit working on you? Yes. Did you ever have a time where you felt like you were supposed to maybe raise a hand in a service or come down front, and you were kind of like wrestling with God? Who was wanting you to respond? The Holy Spirit. And now, now look at this passage in John 16, We'll get into these ones we teach through our book of John and so forth. But uh, verse 7 and 8 says, But truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, here he talks about the advocate again, the Holy Spirit. The advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, look at what he's going to do. He's going to do it really related to the world, to the people of the world, the unbelievers. He says, but he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Those three things, if you, if you sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I, I have it on the screen more clearly so we can see what that verse is saying. The Holy Spirit with unbelievers, this is that first role, role of para, he convicts, or you could say convinces, a person they're a sinner. See, you had to know you were a sinner before you saw a need for a Savior, right? That's the Holy Spirit's role, to show us we're a sinner. As we get ready to start the book of Romans, you're going to see the book of Romans lays out the gospel, and the first chapters is to show us we're sinners, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short. So that's the first role. He convinces us that we're a sinner. Next, he warns of God's coming judgment. Why do people want to make sure they get their sins forgiven? Because they realize there's a death coming, and there's a destination after death, heaven or hell. There's a judgment coming. Sometimes we don't like to talk about judgment, because people say, well, you know, you guys are so judgmental. That's, it's God who's the supreme judge. We didn't write this. And it's important for people to understand that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. One's for believers, one's for the unbelievers, so that he warns of God's coming judgment, and he reveals God's plan, uh, his salvation plan, which is righteousness through Christ. In other words, we don't become righteous through our good works. It's through the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us, for all unbelievers. That's what he had to do in your life before you became a Christian. He had to show you you are a sinner, that there's a coming judgment coming, and the only way you can be righteous is through a relationship with Jesus Christ that you put your faith that he paid the price for your sins. So that's the first role, okay? Usually there's not a lot of confusion related to that role and so forth. Now we go into the second role. This is where it gets a little more interesting. The second one is from the Greek word en. Now if you speak Spanish, you know they use the exact same word in Greek as they do in English. Uh, Spanish is en. We use the English word en, "in." I-en, And that's when the Holy Spirit comes in all Christ followers. This sometimes gets confusing because sometimes certain, not all, Pentecostal people, charismatic people will say, unless you speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Not according to Scripture. That's not correct. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you put your faith in Christ, you became born again, and the Holy Spirit now lives in you. Okay, So make sure you know you have the Holy Spirit in you. Okay, if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're not yet, we'll take care of that tonight, and you can be a believer, and then the Holy Spirit comes in. The Bible says that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Am I right? So, this is where the Holy Spirit is at. He's in us. Greek word, en. and. And uh, I want you to see this in Scripture. We just looked at John 14. I've got it back up on the screen so you can see it again. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you, be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you. He hadn't come in him yet. See, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross and resurrected yet. But it says, and will be in you. Jesus was saying, in the future, the Holy Spirit will come in you. Now, he was talking to his disciples at this point. When did that happen? Well, we see it in John 20. Verse 22, I see it, you'll see it up on the screen there. And he was, after he res, resurrected, so their sins were paid for, the disciples who had the Holy Spirit beside them before, he, he says this in John 20, verse 22, and he says, And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could not live in them yet because Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Once he had risen from the dead, now, all of a sudden, we could be born again. So that was the born-again experience of his close followers. Just because they followed him, they were still considered under like the Old Testament way of, of salvation, which was putting their faith in what Jesus was going to do, not what he'd already done. So this is when they became born again. If you see 1 Peter 1, 1.3 on the screen, it says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us What? New birth, that's when we become born again, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the new birth could not come until he had been risen from the dead. The resurrection paid for it all. The death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. So after he rose from the dead, he breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. That's when the Holy Spirit came in them. What's the Holy Spirit do in us? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? I just have a few things on the screen. There's there's more. We could go into a a longer list. And after I put the slide together, um, I realize I even forgot another one. But here's one. He directs us. He assures us, you know, shows us we're saved and so forth. He comforts us, encourages us. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, produces godly fruit, you know, like the Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit He enlightens. He makes the word come alive. We have understanding of the word. He's our counselor. He helps us. Oh, I got counsels twice. Okay. You you know what that last one was supposed to be? that I forgot. He he convicts us. He doesn't condemn us. But if when you sin, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Who's who's telling you that? Could be your spouse. (laughs) But really, I should... First be the Holy Spirit in us, right? Oh, yeah, shouldn't say that. Oh, I need to go and ask for forgiveness. Just some of the things the Holy Spirit does in us, okay? Very, very important. So is the Holy Spirit in all believers? Yes. yes. Don't anybody ever tell you. But, but now this is the one that sometimes people get a little more confused on. And this is why we're going to go through the book of Acts, and you're going to see this over and over. The third experience is the Greek word epi. Epi. Uh, epidermis. You know, epidermis is the skin. That's another name for skin. That's where we get the word epidermis. An, an, an epi if, if you have an allergic reaction, you get an epi You know, it goes into the skin. Epi, is come from that Greek word. And that what that means is when the Holy Spirit comes on, upon, overflows us. And this is where the Holy Spirit empowers us. He empowers us. Now, I told you a long time ago, turn to Acts 1. Let's start reading in verse 3. Now, remember, what you're about to read happened after John 20. What happened in John 20? Jesus breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the very moments before he goes and ascends into heaven. So the disciples already had the Holy Spirit in them. Because it would be confusing for Jesus to say this if they have not even received the Holy Spirit yet. So I want you to understand, see this here. This is, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, and this is like right before he ascended, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. By the way, I love that Jesus can eat with them in a glorified body. You know what that means? When we are in glorified bodies, we're going to be eating. We're going to enjoy food, and we don't have to look at the calorie count. Amen? So he was eating with them. That's probably part of that convincing proof. And he gave them this command, not a suggestion. He said, look at this. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's where that term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, comes from. Now, wouldn't that be silly for Jesus to say that if they've already gotten all the Holy Spirit they're ever going to get? He's already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But there's something. There's this third experience, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. First, Second experience, he comes in us, but this is when he comes upon us in a way to empower us to do his work. Now, they didn't quite understand it. Look at verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're still fixated on the Messiah kicking the Romans out. Okay? They didn't quite, they didn't get it. Okay? Are you going to restore Israel? You know, are you going to restore the kingdom and he said to them, it's not for you to know the time, the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, I'm not going to answer that question. But let me tell you what I am talking about. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's this verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Epi. That's where that is. He comes on you. Epi. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him, hid him from their sight. So he ascended immediately after that. In other words, the last words that Jesus was recorded as saying before he ascended into heaven was, "Wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For when that happens, you'll receive power to be my witness. That Greek word, for the Greek word for power there is, uh, di, di, um, let me say it, dunamis, dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that. Almost like an explosive type power. So you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? Is it to lay on the floor and flop around like a fish? No. Is it to run around a church and have a big, like a... Goofy thing going like, ah, yeah, the Holy Spirit's on me. Power to be a witness. Never forget that. This third role of the Holy Spirit is to help us in ministry, to help us be more effective in reaching the lost for Jesus. See, when we have, when we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit, correct? When we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, or we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has us. You might need to meditate on that a little bit. A little different way to say it. We get saved. We have the Holy Spirit. But does the Holy Spirit really have us? Is he in control or not? And let me tell you, that's a process. You can be filled. Another hour, or something happened. And you may not be filled. Okay? We have to be filled back up again. We'll talk about that at the very end. Now, this Baptism of the Holy Spirit was actually prophesied in the book of Joel. We don't have time to look at it. Joel chapter 2. It was actually fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost happened 50 days after the Passover. So here's what we know Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days. On the day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place, where they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So for 10 days, he told them to wait in Jerusalem. Now, you're in Acts. Well, me, before we go there, let me just I have a few other things to say. Uh, throughout all four of the Gospels, when something's and uh, repeated in all four Gospels, it's pretty important, right? This concept of Jesus baptizing us in the Holy Spirit is in all four Gospels. I have one of them, but I have the references for all of them. You see all the references there on the top, but here's the Matthew 3, 11 one. This is John the baptizer talking, by the way. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You ever put that together? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is like a fire? Meditate on that sometime. I got meditating on that. The fire. Sometimes we talk about being on fire for Jesus. The baptism of the Holy Spirit will help us to be on fire. But you think about what the two of the main purposes of fire. First of all was light. Let our light shine before the world. Be that, that witness. The fire is a, is a light. Also the fire was a purifier. They would use it to refine things. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He's refining us. He's helping us to shine brightly. And it's really not for us. It's for us to represent Him. It's help us to take Him to the world. Here's one of the few main points I have for tonight, and that is this. The main purpose of being full of the Holy Spirit is power and gifts to help us to take Jesus to this world, to the world. That's that being a witness. That's that being on fire. Who, who did it say is going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit? It said Jesus. All four gospels say that. So it's just something to think about. And before we cruise through the book of Acts, I want to give you a little analogy. Let's say, some of you know this about me, I'm a woodworker. I got a few of my tools up here. Let's say this is you. For all practical purposes, you're a drill. And drills have a purpose, right? What's the dr- purpose of a drill? Drill holes, right? Or it could be to put screws in. But for this purpose, we're, we're drilling holes. But without Christ, we're what? We're empty. We don't have a, a drill bit in it. And this is like a person's life who doesn't have Christ. How can they fulfill their purpose in life they don't have Christ. They need Jesus Christ. So when we invite Christ to come in our lives, it's like we put this drill bit in, and now all of a sudden we have a drill bit. So here's a piece of wood. I want to do ministry. I want to drill. Can I drill a hole right now? Ooh, you're divided church. I like that. Because Some of you are thinking, could I drill a hole in this wood right now? Yes, I could. But let me tell you, I would really have to work it hard, wouldn't I? I'd have to really twist this thing. If I worked long enough, I guarantee I could get a hole with this drill and this drill bit and this piece of wood. But it's still missing something, right? It's missing the power. So picture this. So this is like the second roll. Here's the third roll. Now, remember, I said the Holy Spirit's not a force field, not a power. So no analogy is perfect. So don't, don't pretend like, oh, the Holy Spirit's like this, just a force field of power. No, he's a person. But for this analogy, he's like the battery on here. And so now we're full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we could do a lot more, right? We have power to do the purpose of why we are in this planet, why we're on this planet. So I want you, does that make it kind of clear? Now, what happens if I use this a lot? Battery's going to drain down. What do I need to do? Charge it back up. It's like that with our lives too. The more ministry we do, the more we're representing Jesus, the more we're living our lives, we're going to get drained every morning. We should be plugging in to the Holy Spirit through the word, through our prayer time, through our worship time so we get filled back up. And so that's just a, another way that we can just think about the Holy Spirit is like we we think of it, it gives us the power to accomplish. Now you can do ministry without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I find this is many times where a lot of Christians are at. It's so hard. They don't feel like they have power. They have no boldness to witness. They don't feel like they, you know, it's like, I, I'm saved. I mean, that when you, when you have Christ, you're saved, you're going to heaven. But there's another experience that God wants us to have where he empowers us to do his work. And I think that Satan has fought the church on this. Do you know there's four things that the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of. As he was teaching the churches, four things Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of. He didn't want us to be ignorant about end times. He didn't want us to be ignorant of the role of Israel. He didn't want us to be ignorant on spiritual warfare. And he didn't want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Now, if there's ever four things that the church is all divided about across, (laughs) it's those four things. There's a lot of ignorance about that. I think it's because Satan fights those different areas. He doesn't want us to know his tactics, spiritual warfare. He wants to think that God's done with Israel, so we don't support Israel. And He definitely doesn't want us to know about end times, and he doesn't want us to know about the role of the Holy Spirit. Because he knows if you're full of the Spirit, you're going to be accomplishing more for God. Now, never like look at this like some badge of honor, like, look at me, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people have done that. Uh, to me, then, I think the Holy Spirit says, man, you're going to draw attention to yourself. Um, you're not going to be filled. And I think there's a reason there's a part of a confusion, too, is because sometimes people do extreme stuff, I'll just say it, fleshly stuff, and they label that the Holy Spirit. And other people who are more biblical say, I don't want anything to do with that. That's weird. They'll say, like, well, the Holy Spirit came on me, and I couldn't control myself. Well, I have a problem with that, because the Scripture says that the Spirit, the Spirit is subject to the, the prophet, for, so to speak, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. For example, you would never just say, you know, one of the gifts of the Spirit is giving. You would never say, oh, I couldn't control it. My hand just went into my wallet and started throwing money out all over the place. Like, I couldn't control it. It was like money was just flying all over the place. Okay? No, you have control over what you do for the Lord. Okay? So when people tell you, oh, I just had no, I couldn't, no, I don't see that in Scripture. Okay? And that's also the reason why I think some people reject what we're talking about because they say, that's just weird. I don't want to be weird. I, here's the thing. I learned this in the first, when I first became a Christian. I've been operating in this for 41 years. Now, a few of you might think I'm weird, but I don't think this is weird, okay? But it's a source of power, and I could not do what I do for the Lord without it. Whether it's to be up here, whether it's to talk to someone, whether it's to go on a mission field, or whatever it is. Am I always full of the the Holy Spirit? Uh, Barb would tell you, no, I'm not always, because I'm just like you. But this is what we want to do. We want to seek the Lord. So let's turn now to Acts 2. We're going to just jump through a a few things here. Uh, Acts 2. And like I said, we're just going to do a little cruising because I want you to see it in the Bible, not just what Calvary Chapel says, not just what I say, okay? In Acts 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, see, they were all together. Remember, Jesus told them, You wait in Jerusalem. Don't leave yet. When they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. And all of them were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That is one of the gifts. Not the only gift. It's not the only, it's not the evidence i think it, it could be but it doesn't have to be some searches believe that unless you speak in tongues you haven't been baptized in the holy spirit well there's cases in the scripture that that's not necessarily even mentioned so i don't believe that's the case but i do believe what jesus said in acts 1 4 is it's the power it's boldness that is seems to be a, a common thing um we're not going to read Acts four thirty one, but it says in Acts four that they were all filled again, and these were same people that were here on the day of Pentecost. And it says they did not say anything about tongues, but it says they all spoke the word of God with boldness. So that's in Acts four. In Acts six, when they were trying to find new leaders to help wait the tables, remember the the widows weren't getting served, and the apostles said, "Hey, we can't leave prayer and the teaching of the word." We're going to find some other people that can wait on tables. This is, They looked for people who were full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if everybody's full of the Holy Spirit, that'd be a silly thing to put, wouldn't it? But not everybody's full of the Holy Spirit. So that was one of the qualifications. They looked for those leaders. They wanted people who were wise and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, turn to Acts 8. We're going to look at another example there. In Acts 8, Starting in verse 14. Just give you a second to get there. It says this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive what? The Holy Spirit. First of all, These people were new believers. They had received the word, but if they already received the Holy Spirit, why would they need to go and pray for them again? See, they were praying for this third experience. Because look what it says there. It says, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon or come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus or the Lord Jesus. So these people were saved. But they hadn't experienced this third role of the Holy Spirit yet. So that's why the apostles went there. And it says, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, tonight we're going to have people lay hands on people that would love love to be prayed for. And that is one of the ways. Now, it's not the only way you can be filled with the Holy Spirit or or baptized in the Holy Spirit. But a big way in Scripture is the laying on of hands. So you see that there in Acts 8. Now turn over to Acts 10. Acts 10, verse 44, we're going to start there. We're skipping Acts 9. In Acts 9, if we were to read that, we would see that that's where Paul was saved, and he had Ananias come lay his hands on Paul, and Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's actually in uh, 917. But we're in Acts 10, starting in verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, so he's teaching, just like I'm doing right now, it says, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. We don't see anything about hands being laid on them at that point. The Holy Spirit can just fall on you. I knew a guy one time that was out jogging, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. For some of you, you you may feel more comfortable not having somebody lay hands on you. Others of you, want, I want somebody to lay hands on me, okay? But while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. So we know it's separate from baptism in water because here it happens before the baptism in water. Some people will tell you this. When you get baptized in the water, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, that's water baptism. That's different. And you see it right here in Scripture. So the Holy Spirit came on them. Then what does Peter do in verse 46? Then? then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So we see there the Holy Spirit came on these new believers, and then they were water baptized. Everybody's clear on that one? Again, don't be confused and think, well, it's the same thing as water baptism. Not according to Scripture. Now let's look at Acts, turn over to Acts 19. And this will be our last place we're going to look at in in Acts. Acts 19, verse 1 says this. Then Apollos was at Corinth. And Paul took the road through the interior and right to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So if he's finding disciples, are these believers or not? Yeah, they're believers. They're disciples. He says to these disciples, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Peter said, John's baptism was a, a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then they were water baptized. Before that, they, they didn't have the baptism of Jesus. It was a baptism of John. Verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. That is third experience of epi. And they... Spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. So, what is the purpose of the baptism, of the Holy Spirit? You just saw some examples of it in, in the book of Acts. We didn't read all of the examples, but we did some of them there. We saw Jesus teach about it, wait for it, separate from a salvation experience. The purpose of the baptism is really to give us power and boldness to be a witness for Jesus. I believe it also, according to Romans, gives us an increased power over sin. To me, it's easier to say no to sin and yes to God with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe it's, it is vital and important in our relationship with God. I believe the Scriptures will come more alive. I think it helps us hear His voice more clearly. He teaches us, and we receive gifts to use in ministry. And these gifts aren't for us. They're us taking the gospel to the world around us. And you could read about those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Now, what do we need to do to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? First of all, you need to be a Christ follower. And I would say, if you're a Christ follower, and you don't have any unrepented sin in your life, you know, you've evaluated your life, and you want it, then pray and ask. Ask in faith. You see this up on the screen. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him. Ask him to fill you. It's a good gift. We have grandchildren. I would never consider giving my grandchildren a bad gift. My kids? Yeah. <laughs> I have to think about that one. Not the grandkids, though. But we're, we're evil, and we know how to give good gifts to our ch- children, right? How much more would the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? It's a good gift. But he says, ask. Ask for it. Now, we've read something in there, and we're about ready to close in, in, uh, and start the prayer and worship time. Uh, we read something in there about tongues. And sometimes that's a bit confusing. I just want to talk about that. It's only one of many gifts. Some people put way too much emphasis on gifts, There's three types of tongues mentioned in Scripture. The first one, which is the most common, is a private prayer language. God gave this to me. My wife has it. I know many people have this. This is private, though. You don't hear me praying in tongues in public, okay? Because the Scripture says that if you're speaking in tongues, it needs to be the second type is interpreted. That's where you have a message for a group of people, and in, in our church, we don't practice that in the Big settings, if if it's practiced at all, it can be in a small setting, like a small group, where it can be judged properly, and you know the people are there, and so forth. But but then with an interpretation, it needs to be interpreted. And the scripture actually gives us rules related to it in 1 Corinthians 14. So you have tongues interpretation as a second type, private prayer language as the first type, and the third type is where you, as a person, are speaking a known language, but you don't know that language. It would be like all, all of a sudden I started to give the message in Russian and those of you that speak Russian would say, man, how did he know Russian? Well, I don't know it. And there's cases, people heard that in the day of Pentecost, people heard the, the upper room uh, disciples at 120 speaking praises to God in their language and there was people from all over the world there for, the, for that festival and they heard, they understood these languages. It's less common. Every once in a while, I hear cases of it in other countries where somebody is speaking in a tongue and somebody understands exactly what they're saying, and they're wondering, how does that person know the language? And they didn't. Like I said, it's less common, but God's going to get his message across in one way or another. I personally believe that some of these gifts, we don't see them happening as much today because we are much more, we have the complete set of the scriptures, we teach the Word of God. But you remember, these were used probably even more so in places where they didn't have the Bible, they were illiterate on the Bible, the Bible wasn't available to them, and so forth. But again, we don't dismiss it like it's all been done away with. Some people say, no, that's not for today. I, I, I know one particular script that they try to use to say that it's been done away with, but if they use that, then they also have to say all knowledge is done away with, and we're already seeing Jesus face to face. And I think that... Tongues goes away when we get to heaven. We won't need it. We'll all speak the same language, right? But in the, in the meantime, a private prayer language, I believe, is a very important thing. There are many times I don't know how to pray for something, and I pray in tongues. It's not something weird. I'm not doing it out loud where you can hear it and so forth. But it's, a, it's like what we talked about, uh, I think, was it last week, where we pray in the, in the tongues of men and of angels. So I pray in English. Paul said this. We read 1 Corinthians 14. He says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. But when we pray in tongues, we're speaking to God, not to man, okay? And so uh, even if it's interpreted, it should be a message where we're speaking and we're glorifying God. And you see that in the day of Pentecost. They were glorifying God in that unknown language that they were speaking. And if somebody says, no, I have a message, and it's in tongues, and interpretation comes, thus saith the Lord, this and this and this, no, that's a prophecy, Prophecy is God speaking to man. A tongue is man speaking to God. I get very clear in 1 Corinthians 14. Last point I give you with before we pray. Ask daily to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the continually is in the original language. In our version it just says be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's what we have to focus on is we make sure that we're continually full of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a one-time thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is a one-time thing we pray for. If we've never been prayed for, we say, God, I want all that you have. I want to give you everything in my life. And then we continually ask to be filled.